Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover more about our wondrous world-class city at the Chicago Architecture Center, now open and adhering to public health safety standards. Plan your staycation exploring two floors of awe-inspiring exhibits. From our interactive city models to skyscrapers that change the world. And learn about the fascinating stories behind the fabulous facades. Book your tickets today at architecture.org. The stories of the city begin at the CAC. Your Bendrovsky show for Thursday, July 23rd is moments away. But before we do this, let's thank the following unions for sponsoring our program. Unions like the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. Hey, college students. Are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to make you walk home. Let me tell you about voting by mail. It's pretty cool. Voting by mail ensures equitable access for everyone. Normally, vote-by-mail applications are filled out online or in person. This creates a burden for people with limited access to transportation or Internet services. Disproportionately, the elderly or people of color who are among those at greatest risk from COVID-19. Because of the pandemic, a law was passed in Illinois for November requiring vote-by-mail applications be sent to anyone who voted in 2018, 2019, or the 2020 primary. This falls short of what is needed particularly since these elections saw low turnout. We need to expand access. Mail-in voting is the best way to ensure everyone's voice can be heard safely. We can help expand voting access in Chicagoland by asking officials to send every eligible voter a vote-by-mail application. So visit VoteMailChicago.com. That's VoteMailChicago.com for call scripts and a petition. One more time. Vote. V-O-T-E. Mail. M-A-I-L. Chicago. C-H-I-C-A-G-O. Dot com to make sure that every voter in Cook County has safe and equitable polling. That's correct. Do we have a song of the day for today? Yes. Yes, and I just want to say that I owe this one to my wife. She showed me this clip. I'm not a huge ACDC fan. Really? But there's this clip that's been around forever that I finally saw on the Internet of a group of like a thousand people in Frankfurt, Germany, all playing a highway to hell together. Have you ever seen this clip, D? No. 
And ever since I saw this clip this morning uh, at the ungodly early hour of 9 a.m., which is when I rolled out of bed, I know it was an early morning for me, I've been singing, Highway to Hell, wham, wham, wham. Yeah, man. And then they have the drummers. It's a good song, by the way. Highway to Hell, ACDC. Yeah, we're kicking it back with 10 in a row. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Thursday, July 23rd, and live from Ben's Attic, in my apartment, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, we're talking all things unions, labor, and more with union man, Ed Maher. And now your host... Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, man. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Politically Correct Thursday, and here's why. Big day for the right and their ongoing cultural wars with the left. They win again. They always win. They're always winning in the cultural wars. At least they won a couple of battles that I happened to see uh, in the newspaper today. And everything else I was going to talk about, D, I just shoved it aside. I was going to talk about Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Donnie Trump and all the battles Trump's having with lefty uh, mayors, not even lefty mayors, with Democratic mayors. But nope, I got to talk about this. I just read this. It's just like this little trigger things that this, the little sentences I read uh, that trigger things in my head. And uh, so we'll start with uh, example number one of a battle won by the Tribune, uh, excuse me, by the right, or as Dennis would say, battle number one, 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 one. And it was an article in today's Tribune by Blair Kamen, the the, uh, architect critic about the uh, Christopher Columbus statue in Grant Park. Number one. (laughs) I was waiting for that. Number one. I do that all the time now. Just, you know, this day, like I'm having a conversation with my wife. Uh, There's three reasons why I like your soup. Number one. It's delicious. All right. uh, Here we go. Blair Cameron's the lead is it's surely not fashionable or politically correct to say so, but I've long admired the Grant Park statue of Christopher Columbus that protesters unsuccessfully tried to topple last week. That's example number one. I'll get to that in a little, get to that in a little while. Meanwhile, uh, battle win number two, number two, uh, came in a New York Times column by Farhad Manjou, which was an otherwise intriguing take about deficit spending, which I'm probably going to talk about with Ed Maher. I found it a fascinating article. But then I just saw this little pullout, and I just like, oh, my God, the right wins again. And I'm going to quote. (laughs) You know, I knew you were going to get me with that number two. Quote, both the left and the right have been needlessly obsessed with deficits. All right, I'll get back to that in a little while. Let's just start with Blair Column. Uh, Bear, excuse me, Blair Cayman. His column uh, is mainly an appraisal of the Christopher Columbus statue in Grand Park and why it's architecturally significant. Uh, it's it, actually it's a it's a worthwhile read because it gives you the history of the statue, et cetera, et cetera and so forth. That statue, as you probably know, uh, has been the target of protest by defund the police activists who see it as a symbol of racism, genocide in this country, as in the removal of Native Americans from 
from their land, forcefully sent westward and westward and westward until they pretty much ran out of space. You know, that racism, that genocide, that American history. Uh, on the other side of this great debate are pro-police Italian-American activists like my old friend Frank Coconati. And no, I have not thrown Frank under a bus, even though he is so far to the right these days. I remember when Frank was like kind of a lefty, D. And now he's just like, oh, America, love it or leave it, Frank Coconati. But I'm not throwing him under the bus, Frank. If you hear this, I'm not throwing you under the bus. You got your right to your opinion. I got my opinion. I think you've lost your mind, but hey. I'm sure you thought I've lost mine a long time ago. Anyway, uh, Frank's opinion is that any attempt to remove the Columbus statue is an act act of hostility and disrespect uh, to the larger Italian-American community, and he is ready to resist it by any means necessary. That's uh, basically the attitude that Frank and his allies have taken, and as such, I think they're having a rally uh, at the statue tomorrow, I want to say. I think I got a text about that. So that's their attitude. Now, Blair Kamen is largely agnostic on the issue of whether the statue should be removed. Uh, He mainly talks about its significance culturally and then, you know, talks in general about how we might reconsider our policies before uh, regarding statues and the naming of parks, et cetera, and so forth. But by signifying his appreciation for the statue as a politically incorrect act, he is, whether he realizes it or not, giving one side greater credence than the other because there's two sides to this fight. I mean, my dear old friend Frank Coconati is as adamant in his position as the defund police protesters are in theirs. And he is determined to fight for his position as the defund protesters are there are to fight for their position and he will counterpunch you and he will accuse you of being a anti-italian american bigot if you dare to disagree with him so how is one position politically incorrect and the other one i don't know what more heartfelt when people use the word uh, the phrase politically incorrect they're undermining the credibility of the position that the person has taken they're saying oh it's not like a a substantive argument that they're making it's like this knee-jerk reaction this 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 compulsion to fall in line with whatever like the larger group is telling them there's no greater meaning to it i should feel free to denigrate it and marginalize it and make fun of it But when my old friend Frank says that all Italian Americans everywhere have been insulted by any attempt to take down a Columbus statue, somehow that's not politically incorrect. Somehow that's legitimate. You know, it kind of reminds me of the decision that the Supreme Court made a couple of weeks ago uh, in regards to birth control. In that case, they ruled that companies have a right not to cover birth control for their employees, particularly their women employees. They say that if a company has a religious conviction that forces them to oppose including birth control in their healthcare policy, they should be free not to include the birth control. Now, how is that? not in a politically incorrect position. Why is somehow or another discrimination justifiable if you link it to a religious belief? Like if you're a baker in Indiana and you say, well, my religious convictions compel me to discriminate against gay people who come into my store wanting me to make them a cake. 
Why is that okay? And if you say you're offended by that notion that the baker could discriminate against gays, why is that a politically incorrect position? I think people are using these terms, they don't even realize that they're being manipulated. It's a victory for the right if you think about it. Now we move over to the New York Times. And as I said, it's uh, actually a compelling column by uh, Farad Manjou, How to Fix America, Spend, Spend, Spend. I'm going to be talking about this with Ed Maher in greater detail down the road. Uh, the 2 o'clock hour, uh, Manjou's position is that the way uh, to escape the devastation of the pandemic is to pump money into the economy, to have the government pump money into the economy. If necessary, put everybody to work. If they can't find work for them, send them checks. You cannot have the economy go into a depression. You cannot have people so broke they can't afford the basic necessities. You want to keep uh, landlords. You want to you going to make people uh, able to stay in their homes, have the money to pay their landlords, etc. and so forth. Uh, it's a defense of Keynesian uh, economics, the Keynesian school of economics. Uh, and uh, to justify his position, though he feels compelled to set up one of these false equivalencies that I find so freaking annoying. Guy's got a good argument, but he writes this following paragraph. And whenever anyone is brave enough to suggest that the government itself should provide useful services to Americans like healthcare, childcare, and college education, the first reaction from many on the right and the left is one of defeat and resignation. Quote, how will you pay for it, they ask. The conversation often stops right there because with a $26.5 trillion national debt, America looks hopelessly broke. All right, let me just say this about that. I cannot think of one, not one person on the left who ever argues this point. And when I say left, I mean left, as of left of center. I can't think of one academic. I can't think of one politician. I can't think of one activist. I don't believe there's anybody who's ever called in to one of my shows that's ever uh, tweeted me, that's ever written on Facebook, uh, any listener of the left who has argued that we can't afford to spend money on our the poorest people or on our working class or on our middle class because it'll drive up the deficit. I don't, it is completely foreign position to anybody on the left. Now, you could argue that a centrist would say that, but that would force you to draw a distinction between centrist politicians in the Democratic Party and lefties like myself, like Dr. D. Well, I didn't mean to throw you in there, Dr. D, but I did anyway. He's kind of a, folks, you should hear him in a car. The guy's to the left of me. Point is. Bernie, Bernie, <laughs> Bernie. Is he still running? And that here's the further irony. Manju is referring to a book that was written by Stephanie Kelton, uh, The Deficit Myth. And it sounds like an intriguing book that I'm going to want to read. But Kelton, get this, who has worked as an economist for Democrats in the Senate and as an advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, is one of the leading proponents of modern monetary theory. The theory argues that because the government is in charge of its own currency, it cannot run out of money the way a household or business does. Yes, that's a leftist position. That's a position that most people on the left have. So if you're gonna write a sentence about how there's opposition to this kind of policy, don't say it comes from the left. 
that shows your bias against politics in general. That shows you bought in to sort of the right wing attitude that everybody who's not where Donald Trump is, is left. And there's a big difference between left and center or lefty and liberal, whatever, however you want to uh, identify these blocks of people in this country, there's a big difference. And so it kind of really irritates, I know it's a little thing, but it gets compounded day after day when I see things like both the left and the right have needlessly obsessed with deficits. No, it's the right and the center. And by the way, let's point this out. The right only obsesses about deficits when the left looks as though it might spend more money on poor people, working people, middle class people. That's the only time you'll hear the right obsess about deficits when Barack Obama was proposing a watered down health care for all plan. Oh, my God. You never heard the end of right wingers complaining about deficits when Donnie Trump wants to send spend billions on the military at the same time that he's cutting taxes on the wealthiest people. Not a peep from the right about deficits. So the right's obsession with deficits is really an obsession over how much of the money the government distributes will go to the poor, the middle class, the working class, et cetera, and so forth. And yet they write, the New York Times writes, both the left and the right have been needlessly obsessed with deficits. Any way you look at it, folks, it's another victory for the right. We got a great show today. Ed Maher will be here. Union man Ed Maher will be talking union issues. Uh, and I will. We'll be talking about uh, Ed's been advocating this, uh, the need to spend money uh, at this point in time. He, his big thing is infrastructure projects. Uh, so uh, we'll be talking about these issues and many, many more. But before we do any of that, the young man from Auden, the man they call a doctor with the news. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm Dennis. The local news has gone national. A Chicago alderman was on Fox News last night. Tonight, we talked to Raymond Lopez, a Democrat Chicago alderman. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, it's good to have you with us this evening. Say what? More on that in moments. <laughs> but first, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Big problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. And according to the governor, we had a small problem with an uptick in positive coronavirus testing in the Metro East area of Illinois, AKA the area I just spent all last week at. <laughs> By the way, That's so why you're quarantining yeah. right now. By the way, so far, feeling okay, feeling all right. So knock on wood, hopefully uh, that'll keep going. But during a Wednesday press briefing, Pritzker put the proverbial smackdown on those of the Metro East area and the entire state who may be poo-pooing the whole concept of wearing a mask in public and also those who still think that this whole thing is a hoax. Guys, like I said, I was there last week. I saw it firsthand. In fact, while I was wearing a mask downstate, pretty sure someone called me a pussy at the gas station. So, you know, just saying. <laughs> now, I do have some audio from Pritzker's press briefing. Like to hear it. Here it goes. The deadly nature of this virus is not a hoax. Choosing to go out in public without a mask is not a political statement. Going out without a face covering on endangers the other customers at the grocery store. It puts your friends and your family at risk. 
There's nothing political about that. It demonstrates a callous disregard for the people in your community and in your county and in our state and our nation. The enemy is not your mask. If you're not wearing a mask in public, you're endangering everyone around you. So the enemy is you. Wow. The enemy is you. I know that's going to be turned around. I know Republicans are going to be using that. He's calling us the enemy. He's disrespecting us. They're going to brag, uh, bring back the deplorable line. By the way, they haven't stopped. They still use the deplorable line. I know this because I get tons of emails uh, from the Republican Party all the time. The deplorable line that Hillary Clinton used uh, regarding Trump supporters. They're deplorables. They're still, they, I get emails that say they, they called us deplorables. They insult us. They mock us. They malign us. But we will beat them again. Send $25 to Donald Trump re-election. So we're going to get that, D. The enemy is you. There was a comic strip. I think it was called Pogo. This is way before your time. Probably way before any of our listeners' time. Walt Kelly. I've seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. I think that's what uh, uh, Pogo said. But, uh, yeah, the enemy is you. I see the point that J.B. Pritzker is making. I understand how it will be used uh, by the Republican Party. Uh, and he's absolutely uh, correct. Masks have become yet another front on the cultural war that I was talking about before. Like the term politically correct. Politically correct is another fight. It's another uh, instrument that the Republicans use to try to marginalize the opinions of their opponents. Uh, and so they will take that phrase, the enemy is you, and they will use it. Uh, there's probably commercials being made right now uh, where J.B. Pritzker is. Yeah, you're right. Here. I'm sure there the is. Enemy is you. That's what J.B. Pritzker thinks about you. Pritzker sucks. Sucks. <laughs> Yeah, how come Pritzker sucks is tolerable, but the enemy is you. That's what he thinks about you. So, so uh, yeah, you know, the games people play, D. So where do we go from here? As IDPH director Dr. Azike and I announced last week, the state will take immediate action to impose additional mitigations if a region crosses over the metrics that we set. And Metro East is coming dangerously close to that. So I have spoken with local leaders and I've asked them to clamp down on the outbreaks where they are occurring so that the state won't have to step in. We're now testing record numbers of Illinoisans and we've brought our overall positivity rates down to low single digits statewide from a high of 23% in early spring. If that number pushes back up past 8% in any region, that's a problem of local businesses and residents not following mitigation strategies. Is that it? That was it. Wow. Well, you know, uh, I sympathize with J.B. Pritzker. And, uh, you know, we should bring Dr. Pamela back. She's our uh, Alton uh, expert on medical issues in the Metro East. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter, big proponent of um, national health care. And she came on the show a couple months ago. It was a very popular bonus where she talked about uh, the COVID outbreak in the Metro East area. At the time, she wasn't that concerned about it. I'm wondering if her attitude has changed. But listen, there's only so much J.B. Pritzker can do about the Metro East. Uh, Dennis's beloved 6-1 
I just blanked on it, 618. There we go. Uh, but his beloved 618, because it's right on the border with Missouri. If Missouri, a Republican state, is wide open and free, if you have bars that are open in Missouri, folks in the Metro East who want to go have a good time, guess what? They're going to go to Missouri. So there's very little that J.B. Pritzker could do. That's why we need a national approach to this situation, which Donald Trump is refusing to implement. Uh, that's uh, He doesn't want to go there. He says it's up to the state, so it's interesting. He'll send the troops in uh, to Portland, but he uh, won't implement a national strategy regarding COVID. And it's got I don't know what the good people uh, of the Metro East could do, D, to, uh, to protect themselves if Missouri is wide open. And there's just, oh, you know this yourself. There's just always going to be an element of people, regardless of where you live, Chicago, uh, Waukegan, Alton, who want to go, don't believe that the the virus is a real serious threat uh, and want to go to a bar and they're going to go to a bar. And if the bar is in Missouri, that's where they're going to go. Just like folks from Illinois flock to Kenosha. So I don't really know. There's only, there's limits to what uh, any governor of Illinois can do uh, if the uh, out the, the neighboring states are wide open. I'm not a perfect person. All right, another statewide news. We have another Madigan Gate update. First, Ooh. it was ComEd. Now it's AT&T. <laughs> the following comes from the Chicago Tribune and Jason Meisner. Ben, you know anything about Jason Meisner? Just that he writes for the Chicago Tribune. But I think there were three other names in that story as well. It wasn't just Jason Meisner. I don't really know a lot of people at the Tribune, D. I know Eric Zorn's been a guest on the show. Charlie Johnson's coming back to the show. He's the union man at the Tribune. I know him. All right. Well, hopefully we'll get it's to know Jason Meisner. Yeah. Telephone giant AT&T has been subpoenaed by federal prosecutors amid a widening criminal probe encircling House Speaker Michael Madigan. Political operation, a source with the knowledge of the investigation. And this comes from the Chicago Tribune. The subpoena delivered earlier this year by the U.S. Attorney's Office is a part of an inquiry into whether companies improperly used a stable of consultants with ties to the longtime House speaker as they pushed for legislation in Springfield. Ben, your thoughts? Well, I, uh, that's a, it's a really good article, uh, and I want to thank you, Dee, for alerting me about it. It's one of those articles that was not in the newspaper. It was uh, just breaking on the internet. Uh, and it talks about, sim- it's a very similar story to the ComEd story. So follow me this, folks. Uh, the allegation, or the, sort, the thing they're looking into is whether AT&T uh, put Madigan cronies uh, in job, do-nothing jobs, or, or doled out contracts to Madigan cronies uh, in return for Madigan support on legislation. And the particular legislation that the Tribune uh, talks about, and by the way, it was really a, a good article. I urge everybody to check it out. Uh, the, the particular legislation that the Tribune talks about is one that was passed over Bruce Rauner's veto. Boy, this, this gets back in the weeds. Bruce Rauner, this is back in 2016, over Rauner's veto. Uh, it enabled AT&T to phase out its landlines so that they would no longer have an obligation to have landlines for geezers like me who love landlines, right? I still have my landline. Of and, course uh, you do. <laughs> How many of our uh, guests have landlines? I'm trying to remember. I think there's still like five of them who have uh, landlines. But AT&T said that uh, it was a prohibition that was too costly uh, to require them to have these landlines. More, it was uh, deterring their ability to make money by selling uh, 
getting involved in the cell phone operation. And so uh, there was a bill that would free them of this obligation. Rauner uh, vetoed it. Now, interestingly enough, this is going back in time to a debate from 2016. Rauner did not oppose getting rid of the obligation uh, that AT&T have landlines. He was upset that attached to the bill uh, was a provision that would enable municipalities to raise more money uh, for their coffers by uh, charging people more for 9-11 and 311 calls. So that's what he was, uh, he was objecting to that. He wasn't objecting to AT&T making more money by getting rid of, uh, allowing, getting rid of their landlines. Many of the consumer protection uh, outfits in the state of Illinois objected to the bill precisely because they did not think it was fair. Uh, like senior citizens, old people like myself would have to give up their landlines. So they were looking out for uh, old people like myself. And of course, it was old people like myself versus AT&T. And AT&T was like a truck that just plowed over old geezers. Geezers lost on that one. Uh, and they got the votes to override a router who, again, was opposing uh, slapping uh, the fee on the nine one one and three three eleven calls. So uh, that was the fundamental issue in 2016. And it's a similar one to the Commonwealth uh, Edison issue where Commonwealth Edison got a law passed over a veto by then Governor Patrick Quinn. Uh, and in each case, D, there was a lot of Republican support. So I keep wondering, like, what do the Republicans get out of this? The accusation is that uh, Michael Madigan got all these jobs with Commonwealth Edison and perhaps even AT&T. What did the Republicans get out of it? I look forward to the investigation uh, into what both parties got from this. Or did the Republicans just trade their votes because they just love it when uh, AT&T gets to make more money at the expense of old geezers? So that is the issue that the, the Tribune raised. And as I said, uh, it's an interesting story. I urge everybody to check it out. Are you like our ancient host? Do you still have a landline? Please weigh in on the live stream chat. Let us know, and we will read your comments. Also, feel free at Mini J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, on both Facebook and Twitter. Do you have a landline? I bet no one responds to that. All right, <laughs> on to the news in the city of Chicago. The battle between prison. Hello? That's my landline. <laughs> Hello? Uh, anyway, I just was showing you I have a landline. He's Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> Good time. Just, just trying to show you got a landline, okay? Wait, listen for this. Listen to this. Listen to this. I don't have a landline. All right. <laughs> the battle between President Trump and our democratic cities of the United States continues, and the following is even more proof. Last night, well, no one's favorite nationally syndicated television news network, Fox News, yes, the POTUS hit squad, invited Democratic 15th Ward Chicago Alderman Ray Lopez on to their program. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. I think you're 100% full of shit, is what I think. If you think <laughs> we want offense, fuck you then. Whoa. <laughs> Who are you going to tell me I'm full of shit? Yeah, that uh. foul-mouthed guy. And that clip oh. alone shows you Ray Lopez, not the biggest fan of our Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to make you walk home. So why exactly did Fox News invite Ray Lopez onto one of their shows? Well, to trash Mayor Lightfoot, of course. The mayor has been very vocal uh, about the feds possibly coming to Chicago to help the city's police. She's not a fan. In fact, during a Wednesday press conference, she called it 
tyranny. That's not democracy that we saw unfolding on the streets of Portland as a result of this federal action. That's what we call tyranny and dictatorship. And we are not having it in Chicago. And that was enough for Fox News and some random blonde-haired white lady to run with. Her, her name's actually Martha McCollum. Uh, ben Jarofsky, I don't think I've ever asked you this before. What are your thoughts on Democrats appearing on Fox News? Well, I urge them to do so in most instances. I'm thinking of Bernie Sanders. Remember the um, the town hall meeting he had on Fox? What was it, about six months? It was a, it's like a different a different. Uh, it's like a year ago. ago. Yeah, it just pre-pandemic i thought bernie might actually be the democratic nominee uh and he they they asked him a question about national health care and everybody thought that the audience would boo and the audience ended up cheering and it was like dem- lefties like me were like wow they like us they like us fox likes us so uh yeah that, i i encouraged a democrat but then again here i am d here i'm gonna undercut myself like if you go to show like uh, well, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly's old show, you know, they don't let you talk. So it's like, what's the point? You know what I mean? I don't know if I would go on. I, like you get in there, you start to talk and they cut you off. And, oh, that's stupid. What about this? And then you start to say something like that. Ah, that's even dumber than the last thing you said. Who invited this guy on? Well, you actually did. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if I want to be the punching bag for Fox. So it's kind of like a mixed bag. That, and D, I have a confession to make. You love Fox News. <laughs> No, that's not the confession I was going to make. I, um, I don't, I don't think I've actually watched Fox News. Uh, I want to say ever, but that's not true. I've seen it in the you know screens at airports, and I've seen uh, clips of it on the, the internet. So uh, I, 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 I was you. I didn't even know Raylo was on it, so you texted me. Hey, Raylo was on, and when you said, I thought it was on the Flannery show. That's the. I thought it was local Fox. I was like, Flannery. I thought it was Mike Flick. We got with it. Ray Lopez. That's who I thought. Oh, he's with Flannery. Oh, that's good. I, you know, I like Mike Flannery. Uh, but then you said, no, it's the national. Whoa. And like, oh, he must have been on the Bill O'Reilly show. And then it's like, uh, Ben, uh, <laughs> announcement. Bill O'Reilly doesn't even have a show anymore. Hello. <laughs> so then I know it's this other lady I'd never even heard of. Uh, so anyway, that's. I'm, but I'm eager to hear what he had to say. All right. Uh, on the Fox. Show. Well, good, because I have four clips from Raylo's Fox interview. Let's take a listen here. First, Martha asked Raylo his thoughts on Lori's press conference on Wednesday and that clip we just heard from the mayor. Take it away, Martha McCollum. What did you think when you heard that? You know, it's unfortunate because the mayor has been going back and forth with the president who, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't agree on many of his policies, but mm-hmm. protecting our citizens should not be a partisan issue. As a Democrat, seeing my residents, seeing my family's gun down is not a partisan issue. And for her to go for weeks on end, tweeting back and forth and making all kinds of comments, and then finally admitting yesterday that she's open to having the FBI, DEA, and ATF come in, you know, those comments that she made, you know, remind me of how many lives were lost because of the politics of grandstanding in the city of Chicago. Well, I have to completely disagree with everything Raylo said. Uh, how many lives are lost because of the grandstanding in Chicago? Uh, I, I don't think any lives were lost. I, I cannot think of one substantive offer that Donald Trump has made to the city of Chicago city of chicago d nice job to the people of chicago to deal with 
the violence in our city. And I know that Raymond Lopez's ward, uh, he's dealing with this uh, right there. Uh, his ward is hard hit. I appreciate that. But I would, I, we've had Raylo on. I'll bring him back on. Raylo, please tell me, what substantive offer has Donald Trump made to the city of Chicago? What has he done other than use the rhetoric of the right and put Chicago up as like a punching bag to denigrate Chicago, to take advantage of it? He always talks about, there's another leftist liberal city run by a leftist liberal mayor, and that's what happens. That's, that's the cornerstone to his campaign. So Raylo is criticizing Lori Lightfoot because she counterpunches Donald Trump when he does partisan politics. But by doing that, Raylo is acting as though Donald Trump is some like some innocent bystander. Oh, Donald Trump just wants to help the city of Chicago, but Lori won't engage with him. I've been very critical of Lori Lightfoot over the last few months, particularly with her TIF programs. But in this particular case, I think Raylo is not being fair to Lori. And he's not even being accurate to what's going on. Yes, there's political partisanship here. It's a two sides to a partisanship war. This is what I was getting at before. Another victory for the right. When you accept the viewpoint, when you accept the terms of the debate and the argument that the right has, you're already moving everything to the right. So that the only what? The only thing that Donald Trump has offered Chicago, and he just offered it, is to send in what more agents from the AFT, the DEA. I don't nobody really knows what they're going to do, what role they're going to play. He could have sent those in and, and he's been the president of the United States since 2017. He could have sent them in. Uh, he could have worked with Rahm Emanuel if he wanted. He's good friends with Rahm's brother. Rahm, Rahm's brother is one of the first people that Donald Trump met with uh, after he was elected president of the United States. Donald Trump has never offered anything of substance to the city of Chicago. So, and then the opening that Raylo does. Well, I'm critical of Donald Trump, but uh-oh, always a little dangerous, dangerous when you start with that. So I think this is an instance where Raylo uh, is showing his bias against Lori Lightfoot so much that he's being a defender of Donald Trump. Wait, did you just say something about Mayor Rahm Emanuel? You know he rode his bike, right? I just biked around Lake Michigan. <laughs> How many miles was it? Nearly a thousand miles. Oh, wow. Did and you meet anybody that wanted health care? I don't have a clip for that. Oh, we'll just say no. <laughs> and hey, did you mention Bruce Rauner earlier? Yay for our teachers. Yay for our teachers. Uh, he vetoed that bill, D. Okay. He vetoed them, but not because he was looking out for senior citizens. Oh, no. He vetoed that bill because he didn't want to be able to slap a tax on 911 calls. Let's get it, get it correct. Oh, that's correct. Listeners, that was just clip one. I got three more of Raylo's interview on Fox News, all right? I think a lot of people, um, you, you first got on their radar when that audio leaked of one of the meetings that you had with the alderman and the mayor. Actually, I'm gonna stop it right there. I, I forgot to mention this. Uh, th her reaction to the uh, raylo Lori battle that went uh, that was leaked, her reaction is priceless, guys. And I took the, she beeped it out on hers. I took that out and put the one with all the curse words in. So just <laughs> wanted to throw that out there. All right, here we go. I think a lot of people, um, you, you first got on their radar when that audio leaked of one of the meetings that you had with the alderman and the mayor. I don't want an answer. It's not something you ignore. I think you're 
full of shit is what I think. If you think oh, we no offense, well, fuck you then. <laughs> Who are you, you to tell me I'm full of shit? Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know what is going on between you two, but. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Uh, so do you have Raylo's response yet? Or Here it is. Why is she so upset when it's suggested that something should be done to make these city streets safer in Chicago? Well, I think part of the problem that the mayor has with me is that I run contradictory to the narrative that she keeps trying to portray, that she's in charge, she's in command of the COVID situation, mm. the violence, when it's clearly obvious, not only to the residents of Chicago, not only to myself, and I'm sure to our former superintendent, but to the entire nation, that our city's in chaos and in turmoil. And when I can tell the mayor that, you know, I've addressed these issues in my ward. My ward is like the microcosm of the city of Chicago. We have poverty, we have working class people, we have gangs, we have violence. And we were able to make significant gains in reducing those crime stats year after year prior to this administration. You know, that message hurts her image, hurts her hurts her personally because of her micromanaging style. And unfortunately, that level of pettiness is causing disaster in the city of Chicago right now. All right, I, I got again. I got to take exception to uh, something uh, that Raylo has to say. Uh, part of it I agree with. Part of it about the micromanaging by Lori Lightfoot and uh, you know her uh, sensitivity to any criticism uh, and the way she punches back instinctively. Uh, he's uh, completely right. But this notion that somehow or other the uptick in violence in Chicago this summer is related to something Lori Lightfoot uh, has done as opposed to something that her predecessor did is ridiculous. I've said this a million times, I'll say it a million times more. As long as I lived in Chicago, it's been a very violent city. There, the murder rate, the number of people murdered every year, it goes, there's variances from one year to the next. And I don't know if anyone in the city, any police officer, any police commander, any scholar at a university, uh, any policymaker has ever come up with a definitive explanation as to why it spikes at some times and doesn't spike another time. Uh, yesterday, we were talking to Monroe Anderson and Sergio Mims. I was talking to him and I booked him for a show. And Sergio goes, Ben, there's a gang war going on in the city of Chicago right now. Uh, and then today, sometimes they quoted uh, the police chief, David Brown, saying we're in the middle of a gang war. I'm like, wait, did he get his news from Sergio Mims? Sergio just told me that yesterday. But the, the, the reality is, is that it's not a strategy that a mayor has. I personally believe there's a lot that we as a society could do to curb the violence that we see in cities like Chicago. But it would take a national approach. We have it just like COVID-19 would take a national approach. But we don't have anything remotely resembling that. So, for instance, how about some federal assistance for programs that give people that, uh, more counseling or more therapy to deal with rage, to deal with that, the impulse they have to retaliate at any slight? Why don't we go in that direction? Donald Trump, whenever there was a mass shooting, uh, we talk about the need. We It's it's not the guns. It's the people that need, uh, they have mental problems and we need to spend more money on mental health. Then there's never any money sent for mental health. So I have not seen anything, any strategic strategy since I've been in the city of Chicago, and that was in 1981, that's when I moved here, that would affect 
the rising and falling crime rates. So I just think it's misleading for Raylo to say, oh, there's something that Lori Lightfoot did uh, that Rahm Emanuel didn't do or vice versa, something she's not doing that he did uh, that affected uh, the murder rates. Because I see no evidence of it. You can just look for yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Year One year it goes up, another year it goes down. I mean, it goes down. Mayors pat themselves on the back. It's like test scores. They're always trying to make test scores go up in the public schools so that they can pat themselves on the back. As soon as they get into office, they try to make them as uh, low as they possibly can so they can take credit over their predecessor. It's a political game that's done on a local level when what we really need is a national approach uh, to these problems. But, of course, we're not getting a national approach. So whether he realizes it or not, and I think he does, uh, Raymond Lopez is playing in uh, to Donald Trump's partisan game, and he's being a tool of Donald Trump. And that's probably why Fox brought him on, because if they wanted to, if they wanted to bring a critic on, they could have brought a lefty critic on. They could have brought Carlos Ramirez Rosa. He's been critical of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. He's had some uh, dust-ups with Mayor Lori Lightfoot, but they're not bringing a lefty on. They're bringing somebody uh, who is sort of repeating Donald Trump's talking points, and that's why Raymond Lopez, whether he realizes it or not, is a very effective person for Fox to put the highlight on. Well, Carlos Rosa would have ate that blonde-haired lady's lunch. <laughs> I wonder if Carla, remember when they had, uh, I was asking you this about uh, earlier, it was about 10 years ago, there was the big fight over uh, Chick-fil-A and uh, the prejudice of the order of Chick-fil-A against gays and lesbians, etc. And um, who, Proco Joe was on. So Raylo is not the first Chicago alderman. I think Proco Joe is on Fox. Proco Joe, the former alderman of the first ward, one of Dennis's good friends. And, How did you um, know? I was trying to keep that to myself. <laughs> I just threw that out to see if you were paying attention. Oh, Proko Joe, when he came to our show, he was very nice. He brought me a Rolling Stone catalog or special magazine dedicated to 90s rock. He loves 90s rock, ladies and gentlemen. And you framed uh, that, didn't you? Yeah, I framed it. I think it's on the wall. Over yeah. the 10 trivia points. Who was on the cover? Ice Cube. No, it was Kurt Cobain. Very good for knowing that. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, uh, but he was, Proko Joe went on. I remember he went on and they were f- feuding with him. They were trying to, they were setting, and that was one of those where they wouldn't let him talk. What kind of imbecilic attitude is that? But then again, I, I recall that then he brought Proko Joe back because he played the Raylo. Oh, here you go. Fox will bring a, le- uh, a Democrat on when the Democrat plays into their political needs. So when the teachers went on strike, I remember Proko Joe went on to say, I love teachers. I just don't like teachers union teachers unions and fox was like oh great a chicago alderman we can agree with once again they didn't bring carlos ramirez rosa on of course uh so uh anyway so ray low is sort of playing that proco joe role and there's always a chicago alderman d who's willing to play that role look for the proco joe evening show on fox news coming in <laughs> september all right we got one more clip to play from ray Lowe's interview on fox news you had your home uh was broken into attacked your office was also uh, had shattered windows and glass. So you have been on the front line in this. But you're a Democrat. She's a Democrat. You know, who characterizes better where the people of Chicago are on this if, if that's an assessment that can be made? 
Well, I think, you know, obviously we're a city of Democrats, but we're a city of different kinds of Democrats. And I'm more of a, a middle-of-the-road kind of Democrat who believes that we can't have social justice, we can't have good relations with police, and we can't have good safety all in the same city. It is possible. We have done it in my ward. And unfortunately, too many politicians in my city and across this nation find it's easier to pander to the lowest common denominator in our societies as opposed to challenging people to believe and aspire for something greater. And I, for one, know that that can happen in our city again. We just have to start enforcing laws, targeting those individuals who will not change, helping those people who want to change, and knowing that we can do better moving forward. All right. Once again, I mean, Raylo is pretty skillful. I got to give him credit. But once again, he's creating a distinction with Lori Lightfoot that's non-existent. He's trying to pretend as though Lori Lightfoot is somehow a leftist radical who wants to defund the police. That's not the case. She's immensely popular in the city of Chicago right now, ladies and gentlemen. The only people who seem to criticize Lori Lightfoot, aside from Raylo, are people on my show. That's it. She's like, what, 75% approval rating, D? Exact, precisely because she does that middle of the road. And she uh, is not definitely, it's, uh, listening to him talk to that, uh, the woman from Fox, it's like listening to Chris Wallace interview Donald Trump. And Donald Trump says, well, Joe Biden's for defund the police. And Chris Wallace says, no, he's not. So, but obviously the, uh, the interviewer for Fox is not aware of Lori Lightfoot's positions. Lori Lightfoot uh, is very much a centrist uh, when it comes to dealing with police issues. She is not on the side of the defund police. That is for certain. And we talked about that endlessly with the debate about school funding of, of, of police, whether there should be police in the schools. And Lori Lightfoot says that she's leaving up to the local school councils. Uh, and, but meanwhile, She's making the schools pick up the tab for the police. So she loves police so much that she takes money from the schools to pay for the police. And yet, somehow or other, when Ray Lowe is done talking to the uh, correspondent for Fox, Lori Lightfoot is the second coming of Carlos Ramirez Rosa. So this is like, again... Once again, D, I did not know you were playing these clips. And it's just fitting into this overall theme that we have for the day. The way the right positions the debate and the discussion in our country to undercut the legitimacy of the left. In this case, a centrist is positioned as a somehow a far left leftist. Lori Lightfoot is a centrist. She's every bit as much a centrist as Raylo is when it comes to the police. And Raylo sounds more like a Republican, but he realizes that if he lets his Republican freak flag fly, he'll never get elected because Republicans are exceedingly, at least Donald Trump Republicans are exceedingly unpopular, particularly in the 15th Ward. Listen, I'm gonna give Raylo credit. Uh, He's he's a gutsy guy. He's taken on gangs in his ward. He's had uh, his windows uh, smashed. I had him on the last show. When he was, uh, he had a police bodyguard. So I give him credit uh, for his gutsiness. But in this particular case, Raylo, I'm just going to have to tell you right now, I think you are just parroting the Trump line against Lori Lightfoot. Uh, and I think it does a disservice to what Lori Lightfoot's position is and how that different differentiates with Carlos Romero Rosa's position. So 
Well, Raylo, we'd love to have you on the program sometime. Please reach out. We'll get you on here. We could talk about uh, all of this going on, uh, whatever you want to talk about. We could even talk about that one time you uh, carpooled with Mayor Lightfoot. What did she say exactly? I won't just turn the car around. <laughs> I'm going to shut it off. Huh. I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to yeah. make you walk home. Bad times. <laughs> Bad times. Yeah. All right, so that's our local news, guys. Uh, don't go anywhere, because coming up, we're going to be talking to our good friend Ed Maher. He's a union man. He's a big feller. You won't be able to see him on the live stream, but uh, boy, he's a big feller. And uh, he's going to be coming up very shortly. We remind everybody once again, find us on social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show on both Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram as well. You can reach out there. Uh, Also, you can send us an email if you'd like. Benny J Show at gmail.com, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show at gmail.com. And guys, we have a phone number. That's right. You can call us, leave us a voicemail. You know, voicemail is all we'll do. We're not going to answer the phone really but leave us a voicemail and we'll more than likely play at the number to reach 708-658-4788 that number again 708-658-4788 all right uh, what dennis yeah uh, i know that was an excellent outro yes it was a great job a yeah. really good job all right you know it showed some great radio school training but i just have to say one thing before we leave okay uh and uh, so yesterday, you caught me off guard with your reference to a Mark Brown column uh, that had not come out in the real newspaper. And as everybody knows, uh, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to these things. I get my news in 24-hour cycles in the newspaper. And that article was in today's Sun-Times, that column by Mark Brown. And you know what, Dennis, it's something weird here. I must uh, confide to you that somehow or other, when I read the article in the in the newspaper, as opposed uh, to reading it on my little phone screen, it's more real. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. it's hard to explain. Uh, and maybe it's because the the it's the layout of the way that sometimes did the layout. They got pictures that sort of that illustrate the points uh, that Mark Brown is making. And you get to see like the, all the characters like uh, Michael Madigan and Mike McClain and Marty Sandoval and uh, Teresa. Ma- anyway, uh, one more time, I'd just like to uh, recommend that folks read this article by Mark Brown. It's an outstanding investigative work. Teresa Ma is a state rep. Uh, who got a knock on the door. Wait, I'm sorry. It was, they rang the doorbell. Ding dong. At seven in the morning from the FBI. Still do not why. Still do not know why they felt compelled to come show up at seven o'clock unless they just wanted to intimidate her because she's not, she, they were, she was just a source. She's not the uh, target of their investigation. Uh, but it's a, a interesting article about, uh, uh, real estate deals in Chinatown and the role that Michael Madigan may have played uh, and uh, also the role that the the Republicans, one more time, Republicans were up to their eyeballs uh, on this one as well as they were trying to uh, pressure uh, the uh, city into supporting a move by the state uh, into buying the, uh, the parking lot so it could be developed. Anyway, great article by Mark Brown. We talked about it yesterday, but it's in today's newspaper. So somehow or other D, it's more legitimate or real in my ancient mind.
Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Benny J, take it away. Once a month, uh, Ed Maher from the Operating Engineers comes on. We talk politics. We talk uh, the economy. We talk what our government can do uh, to stimulate the economy, to protect us uh, when uh, we're in desperate straits. And that certainly uh, summarizes where we are right now. Ed, welcome back to the show. Hey, Ben. Good to be back. Good to and see I'm you actually... Too, I'm looking at Ed, uh, and one more time, Ed, I'm going to tell you, uh, we've we been telling everybody this week, uh, ever since Dennis went back home last week for his fa- father's funeral in Alton, he's been at his home um, in my attic, uh, and because he's quarantined, quarantining, he's being a good friend to me, does not want to give me COVID. We don't even know if he has it, but he's looking out for me, so I appreciate that. So I've got you in one place. Dennis in another place, and me in the third place, and I'm watching both of you on my screen. You can't see me because apparently my computer doesn't have a. He's uh, a man of a mystery. Camera. Ooh. 
Yeah, who's this weird guy? Uh, as I do with many guests, I gave Ed an assignment. I sent him an article to read a column. Uh, it was in the New York Times, How to Fix America, Spend, 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 uh, by Farad Manju, and I've already talked about it. it uh, I thought it was a very interesting and intriguing article about... Uh, our needless obsession with deficit and in his opinion uh what america do, should do right now and ed reading this column i thought a lot about you because it it's he sounds some of the same themes uh, that you've been championing uh for the last year or so on my show so we'll get to that i don't know if you read the column as your homework assignment oh you I, did read I it. actually read it yesterday Oh, oh, mister, I read it on the line as opposed to the old man who reads it in the newspaper all right uh but uh, be, uh, before we get to that uh, and to that column and get your thoughts on it, uh, a couple of thought, things that you wanted to talk about. Uh, imminent cuts to unemployment benefits and the fragility of the economy. Uh, you raised that as a general topic. Uh, what exactly were, uh, get a little more specific there, Ed, what were you talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, is so important that's going on nationally right now is the, the pending expiration of these unemployment benefits. Uh, as many of us know, we... Um, we saw a six hundred dollar uh, increase to unemployment benefits back in the beginning of the pandemic, and that's been a godsend for a lot of a lot of families because ordinarily unemployment covers the basics, but not really anything else. Um, and with this this uh, this greater amount, people have felt much less of an impact. And I think I think a lot of people have been surprised at the resilience of the economy or maybe the resurgence of the the market or, you know, a lot of people, including myself, thought that things would be an awful lot worse by this time when this all started in March. Um, And I think that the unemployment uh, benefit program was is one of the reasons that we're you know in a better place than we could otherwise have been. Now, that six hundred dollar supplement is set to expire at the end of the month. And, um, you know, if you're if you're out of work. Uh, taking $600 a week out of your pocket, you can imagine the difference that's going to make in, in a lot of lives. So now it's it's kind of scramble time for both parties to, to figure out what's what the next move is. And I think both parties agree that simply letting it expire and not replacing it with anything else is not an option. So uh, Democrats have, have been pushing for a continuation of the plan um, and just kind of waiting for what the Republicans' response will be. So the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, um, who I know, Ben, you're a big fan of, uh, <laughs> he, he was supposed to release his plan this morning. And there's been yeah. some kind of chaos up on Capitol Hill because, as we saw, um, you know, the only demand that the president had of this was that we extend uh, or I'm sorry, cut uh, payroll taxes, which I'd love to talk a little bit more about in a minute. But um, the uh, the plan's been delayed coming out of the Senate. Uh, but the Senate plan is to, I think, replace 70% of lost wages over the, you know, throughout the course of the year. That's their starting position, which I know is is less than what um, less than what Democrats have been pushing, and probably wholesale is quite a bit less than the $600 supplement. So, um, I mean, they're they're preparing to to cut the unemployment benefits, and I think that what we'll see if unemployment benefits are cut is we're going to see. Um, you know, more people struggling to make ends meet, more people defaulting on uh, loans. I think the moratorium on um, evictions and things like that is is about is set to expire. Uh, you know, in the city and the state as well. So, 
Um, I think that a cut like that at this time would be would be really premature. And I mean, I, I think it's something that we should all be paying attention to because it's going to have a big impact on our, our local economy, our national economy um, over the next couple of months. So I think that everybody should be united and hoping to see something good happen on this unemployment um, this unemployment insurance front because you know in the past I think unemployment insurance has been something that's so heavily politicized um, you know the haves looking down on the have-nots and looking at it as a handout or an entitlement or something like that uh, but if this if this pandemic has taught us anything it's that anyone's job can be taken away from them for no fault of their own. I mean, successful people of, of all political stripes, races, creeds have lost their lost their jobs and people who never in a million years thought that they would need unemployment have found themselves collecting unemployment. And frankly, I think have been very thankful, um, you know, that uh, that unemployment's been a little bit more substantial than it once was. I mean, it, it, it goes a long way in the pockets of people who, who really need it. Uh, listening to you talk about this, that brings back the conversations we had uh, in the summer when the, the debates were going on with the Democrats and Democrats were there were some Democrats who were arguing against Bernie's health care for all. Everybody knows I'm a big Bernie supporter. But this is exactly why you want to wean yourself from a health care program that's linked to your employment. Uh, if you for no fault of your own lose your employment, you're without a health care plan. And I recall so many times just, just listening, brought back the memory. Of, of some of the Democrats who said, I'm looking out for union members who have negotiated for their health care plan, and I'm sticking up for them in those great union negotiated health care plans. And I'm thinking, you know, God bless those union guys who've got the good health care plans. But if they lose that job for no reason of their own, for no fault of their union, they're without health care. And it's the same thing. It's sort of the same principle that you're getting at right now when you talk about unemployment insurance. For sure, and I'll say I'll say this as well. I think that prior to this pandemic, um, you know, the the Medicare for all idea or just national healthcare was um, you know a party line topic. A lot of people on the right simply weren't interested, and I think that we're going to see. And I think we talked about this the last time I was on. Um, I, I've, I've got to imagine that we're going to see people on the right a lot more open to this idea now uh, because they've seen that. Um, losing insurance isn't something that just happens to people who don't work hard or some some kind of nonsense like that. This, you know, when when you lose your job through no fault of your own, you lose your health care through no, no fault of your own, and um, that's not fair. I think you know we've all been we've all been banging this drum for a long time that that's just simply not fair. Uh, and there's just got to be a better solution. So I think the idea of of untying insurance from employment is something that's going to become a little bit more popular. And I'll be honest, I mean, I don't know whether Medicare for all, how it would compare to uh, a lot of the plan, the healthcare plans that union members enjoy. Um, I mean, as a union member, I'm, I'm immensely lucky to have really, really high quality healthcare. It's expensive, uh, but it is very, very high quality. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not all that concerned about a difference in, in my health care because it, it, when there are so many people who are making the decision to get their kids medicine or put food on the table or pay the electric bill or take their child to the doctor and making the hard decision not to, not to go to the doctor, not to take their kids to the doctor because they can't afford it, um, I think those of us who have good coverage, um, 
you know, we've, we've, we've got to consider them and all that, uh, you know, as, as you have said in the past, Ben, like we're, we're all playing on the same team. It doesn't feel like it all the time. In fact, it doesn't feel like it most of the time in the last couple of years, but I think we've, uh, we've all got to be willing to look out for the people, um, who really, really need this help. And, uh, and I, I have a couple of friends who have softened up on their stance, on um, national healthcare as they've, uh, been out of work for the last couple of months. There are people yeah. who, you know, used to trash Bernie and, you know, call this socialism, but, um, you know, lose your health care and your job overnight and, you you know, your political views can change awful quick. Yeah, Bernie, uh, by the way, at the la- I don't know if you know this, usually you keep your cards close to your vest as to who you support, but last time you were on, you let loose that you were a Bernie supporter. I was like, oh, I did not know that. Until you, did that uh, surprise you? didn't surprise me. It just, what surprised me is that you said it. I, I, no, I did it. I, uh, I just got to say this. Uh, Ed at one point was, a, did some substitute. Uh, uh, he was a substitute host on CPT uh, for Norman, uh, Norman and um, uh, God bless him, Norman. And he was battling with these uh, right wing callers. And I was like, Damn, he's more left than I am. Uh, Ed Maher keeps the uh, Ed Maher. Uh, yeah, you said something, Ed, and I want to go back to it and get your thoughts, get you amplified a little bit. Uh, and I've heard this uh, argument put out by some of the opponents to extending the unemployment uh, benefits, and that is that it would be a, a deterrence to people from getting a job. And this is an argument uh, that. Uh, many Republicans have been making uh, in uh, during these debates. It's, it's a deterrence to getting a job, which is a, I struggle with that because if they're, like if you're a waiter and they've shut down the restaurant business, I, I don't know what you're gonna do, you know? Uh, so why don't you uh, go into this a little bit, elaborate upon this a, a bit. I would say that in, in normal circumstances with normal unemployment levels, um, if you if you paid people vast sums of money in unemployment insurance, that could be a legitimate concern. Um, you know, if there were a lot of unfilled jobs out there waiting to be filled, right now that's just simply not the case. There are um, there are jobs available. They're usually at uh, you know you can drive for Amazon. I mean, Amazon's hiring uh, an awful lot of people. Uh, you can work in grocery stores, but I mean these. It's not as though there are just a lot of jobs for somebody to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get up off my couch, pull up myself by my bootstraps and get out there and, and start applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs. This is a job market like we've never seen. Um, you know, corporations are not hiring right now. There are hiring freezes across um, businesses of all sizes and, and, and throughout all industries. Um, so it's not as though we should be criticizing anybody who's unemployed for not trying to find a job, um, because I think we can all agree. I mean, if any one of us put ourselves in the shoes of someone who just lost their job, what's I mean, what it, what do you think it's like to wake up without a job right now? Uh, how daunting is it to, to look for another job? There are not a lot of great prospects. Um, and so I think we've we've under normal circumstances, there might be some merit to that. There might be, um, you know, some additional conversation to be had about what the appropriate level of unemployment benefits is compared to, um, you know, average incomes or the incomes of uh, of the filers or things like that. But um, right now, I think 
we've got to we've got to stop pointing fingers and and got to. I think these these arguments are driven a lot by um, people who kind of want to look down on on others, and uh, it's just not the time for that. You know, there's uh, people who are out of work need help right now, and it's in the national interest to help those people. You know, let's not forget about that. The as as the middle class goes, America goes. And if we want to hang everyone out to dry and uh, and just say, well, you should have worked harder, you should have, you know, tried harder, you should have, mm-hmm. you know, been more industrious. Yeah, that, you know, that's that's nonsense when uh, all it's going to do is hurt our economy. The, unemployment insurance is a is a good investment. And the same thing with food stamps. It's the you, you get more return on your dollar, your public dollar uh, from food stamps than you do from any other federal program. It's a good program. Uh, it, it's politicized and something that people love to trash and look at as, as um, you know, there's such a, a negative stigma attached to it. But without it, the economy would suffer. Um, you know, and, and I think that's something that a lot of conservatives just are either um, unaware of or unwilling to admit that things like unemployment insurance and food stamps and things like that support uh, appropriate levels of support are uh, are critical to maintaining the health of the economy. And I can't imagine if we hadn't done this unemployment insurance in March. Can you imagine mm-hmm. what the 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 impact on these personal financial situations would be of these? I think right now it's it's over, still over twenty million people filing for un, unemployment benefits. Can you imagine what the difference would be for those twenty million people and the families that many of them support. If, uh, you know, if you started to, to nickel and dime them and, you know, tell them, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get half of that because you're not working hard or something like that. Well, the fact, Ed, that uh, the Republicans went along with the first uh, package and, well, as you said, we haven't seen McConnell's specific uh, plan yet, but they they seem ready uh, to go along with this one. seems that there's been a political shift uh, in this country on these economic issues and whether anybody wants to admit it or not. We'll get we'll get to Donald Trump's payroll tax thing in a little bit, but whether anybody wants to re- uh, admit it or not, the country has, politically speaking, moved to the left from where it was a year ago. There's two people that I think are saying, I told you so right now. Um, and that's Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang. Yes. Andrew Yang. Yeah. Andrew Yang. Uh, absolutely. He, uh, uh, he, with his, uh, his direct payment program. All right. Trump payroll tax. Yeah. And I'm, I, love I'm on, I, I, I can't even, I can't figure this one out. Like, where does this come from? If you have a, uh, if you cut at this moment, where we're expending so much money to, to help people, the payroll tax, to, just talk a little bit about the impact uh, it would have on Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and just, we'll get into the deficit as well. But we're just like this. This proposal by Donald Trump just came out of nowhere as far as like, what's going on here? Explain to people a little bit about Donald Trump, what you think is going on here with this proposed payroll tax cut. So this is something that I've I've been watching since it was first mentioned back in March. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't take a, a, a genius to follow the breadcrumbs here. Um, I would say take a look back to the um, to the Trump tax cuts when he passed this tax cut package and it was overwhelmingly beneficial to the wealthy and to corporations, but it threw a bone allegedly. Uh, it's what they said to, to ordinary working middle-class Americans, which didn't turn out to be such a, such a big bone after all. Um, but uh, um, they, they cut, I think it was, I think it came out to be, 
like $10 trillion over the course of 10 years. Um, so, I mean, it's like if we're in such a, a dire situation with the deficit, how can we be cutting taxes at this enormous level? Um, you know, how it's, it's like, uh, it's like being, you know, near bankruptcy and uh, quitting your job, you know, you're cutting the revenue that you have available. So the reason that it was done uh, that I thought was, to create a crisis with entitlements uh, or so-called entitlements. I actually hate the term entitlements. Um, but sure enough, um, about two months after the tax cut was enacted by President Trump, Mitch McConnell was out saying, you know what, we can't afford Social Security anymore. We can't afford Medicare anymore. And I mean, it's like you, you cut out $10 trillion to give corporations tax breaks. So and now you can't afford to pay for social programs that are useful for the middle class. Now, what directly funds Social Security? That's the payroll tax. So the way that I saw it is if we're going to – it's a way to make it popular, just the way that, that these you know, supposed tax cuts to the middle class um, were a way to get them on board – Give me a little tax cut and I'll let you cut my Social Security. Like that was the goal, I think, of, of the right, you know um, – the departed former speaker, Paul Ryan, uh, I mean, I think his legacy was supposed to be built on dismantling entitlement programs. Um, and this has long been a goal of an awful lot of people on the right. And a lot of the conservatives was to restructure Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. And I think that that's this is an easy way for them, you know, apparently to try to do that, to say, we're going to cut your taxes. Your paycheck's going to get bigger. We're cutting payroll taxes. You know, okay, that sounds good. But if you take a look at it in through the lens of payroll taxes pay for Social Security, this payroll tax cut would have been followed within a couple months with more calls to cut Social Security, just saying we can't afford it. And the people who need it most would be there saying, well, you know, the numbers aren't there. We can't afford it. Um, and it's just a trick. It's a dirty trick. And it's not even a really, you know, elaborately orchestrated trick. Um, so I'm I'm very, very happy to see that uh, that the Senate pushed back on this. I mean, far too often they haven't been willing to push back on things like this. But um, but in this case, you know, maybe we dodged that. Uh, I think we've lost Ed Maher for. Uh, oh, are you back, Ed? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. lost you. Uh, you see, you were saying you, we dodged that bullet. I, I would say uh, that there's a political reality, and that is there's elections in November, and a lot of senators, a lot of Republican incumbents are, are up for re-election, and the last thing they want when they go into an election uh, cycle, particularly with a president who's unpopular in the polls right now, is to be you know linked to a social security, a cut in social security. Right. And so I think that's uh pro, but I just do not understand the mindset that Donald Trump uh, would even propose this uh, at his time. Your, your analysis is spot on. This has been the Republicans have been looking for an excuse to, to cut social security for years. Uh, but in the middle of a pandemic, when unemployment uh, is, is rising to, uh, to like 20% or so, uh, get back to something you said. You hate the term entitlement. Elaborate on that. What, what are you getting at when when uh, when opponents of Social Security uh, talk about entitlements? What, do, what are you talking about when, uh, what do you think they're getting at when they call them entitlements? I mean, I think it's just, it's a way to stigmatize Social Security and, uh, and, and make it look like um, something that people haven't earned, to treat it almost like welfare. Um, 
you know, um, I've, I mean, I've got friends that I guarantee will be dependent upon social security when they retire, but they still talk about it as though it's a, you know, a joke or something. Oh, we can't afford that. You know, people shouldn't be depending on that. And, um, in I mean, do you pay into social security throughout your entire career? <clears throat> yes. Do you pay into Medicare throughout your entire career? Yes. Do you pay into unemployment while you work? Yes. So, I mean, I remember the first time that one of my friends lost his job and he was telling me that he thought, oh, God, I think I think I'm actually thinking about filing for unemployment. And I said, absolutely, you should. You know, you you pay into this system throughout the entire time that you're working. And if there comes a time that you need it, um, you should you know, there shouldn't be any stigma. There shouldn't be any shame around this. Um, you know, I think this this whole notion of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps um, is just a fallacy. Um, there are times, there are times in everyone's career, every in everyone's life, when you need a little bit of help. And if if you're paying into Social Security, you're paying into Medicare, you're paying into unemployment insurance, you should have a reasonable expectation that it's going to be there waiting for you if the day comes that you need it. Um, so calling it an entitlement, where it um, it suggests that. Somebody just thinks, oh, I want this. Oh, I'm going to get this, you know, and hasn't paid into it or hasn't earned it, hasn't doesn't deserve it. Um, I mean, it's just it's a nasty little wordplay that's been used by the right for for too long. So um, I hate the term entitlements. It's not accurate. Um, and uh, I think it 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 sort of, you know, creates a, a stigma of people who rely on these critical social programs as being less than others. Um, and I, I, I just don't agree with it one bit. Well, I got to tell you, uh, once a month, Jeff Johnson comes on. He's our pension guru, we call mm-hmm. him. And uh, we're always defending the pension uh, that uh, a lot of uh, public employees get. Uh, but I just find it, I don't know what people, what, what right-wingers want people to do. They're against pensions, say we can't afford pensions, and now they they want to cut Social Security. So what, right. just don't, don't get old, okay? As an old guy, I can tell you're, you're going to need that Social Security, folks, and it's for savings. I mean, in business law, Ed, way back in the 70s, just a class called business law, and they taught us, you got to save, you got to put aside a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, because you're going to get old. It was I actually appreciated the business law class I took back in 1971, Ed. That's how old I am. Anyway, uh, yeah, I know it's ancient. And but, Social Security was never supposed to be the standalone sole um, source of income in retirement. The uh, I forget the gentleman's name who um, you know was a pioneer of the four hundred one k system, um, and in the last couple of years, he's been in in multiple magazines just lamenting the fact that four hundred one k's are being um, trotted out as like the alternative to social security, the alternative to pensions. He says this was never supposed to be a single source of retirement income. There were multiple systems that were supposed to work together. Social security, 401ks, pensions, and personal savings. Um, Now, pensions in the last 30 years have uh, fewer American workers get pensions. Um, Social security has has kind of been, been pretty stagnant. 401ks are still there, but personal savings are way down. If you look at the amount of money that the average American has saved for retirement, it's uh, it's it's terrifying. I think it's under it's almost 45 or 50 percent of working Americans have nothing saved for retirement. And I think the next 30 percent have 60 grand or left less saved for retirement. So, um, you know, we can we can wipe out all these um, so-called entitlements. But when everybody who's retiring has no money to support themselves, 
we're going to have to come up with a solution as a society. So it's like the old Fram air filter guy, you know, you can pay me now or pay me later. Um, these, these, these programs are necessary for economic health in the long term. Uh, we've just got to stop slapping labels on them to, to try to score political points or make ourselves feel better than somebody else. Yeah, uh, and uh, as disposable income falls, there's less money to save. So sure. uh, that's just a reality. And uh, it's, and then if you cut Social Security, you're really putting squeezing people. All right. Uh, so you were, you didn't even have to do your homework. I sent you the article to read. You'd already read it. You beat me to the punch. But I found it a, a very intriguing article. I, I, I appreciated the main theme uh, that uh, Farad Manju was making. How to fix America. Spend, spend, spend. And I'm going to read to you, get your thoughts on some of the key passages. We'll start with this one. He's talking about uh, uh, two books that he read. Uh, and um, one is The Price of Peace, uh, an incisive biography of the British economist John Maynard Keynes, which illustrates the awesome power of economic theory to alter the fates of nation and the lives of people. The second was The Deficit Myth in which the economist Stephanie Kelton convincingly overturns the conventional wisdom that federal budget deficits are somehow bad for the nation. And that conventional wisdom, federal budget deficits are somehow bad for the nation. Talk a little bit about that. That's a, that's a very prevalent uh, conventional thought in American politics. I mean, deficit is something that used to be a, a, a keyword, or the debt used to be something that uh, that you know, was the central focus of like the Tea Party movement and the Republican Party for a while. Um, now, of course, the deficit um, and the national debt have both increased wildly over the last three and a half years as, you know, we've uh, we've forgone um, revenue from corporations, things like that. But again, you've got to look at, at what the effect of the money that you're spending is going to be. There are ways that you can spend money that don't bring any um, return. But if you're going to invest in things like infrastructure, um, you know, unemployment, food stamps, things like that, there are programs that if you put money into them, you get more of a return on your dollar. And that's a good thing. Um, now, does it does it translate to uh, directly to budget dollars? No, but it can translate directly to, um, you know, reduction in, in otherwise uh, you know, if, for example, let's take a look at what um, what Governor Rauner did with social services when he was the governor of the state. It was um, despicable. He thought we'll save money by cutting out social services for people with developmental disabilities. Um, now, wherever he is, I don't know where he is these days. I think he's in Italy, but I hope he's staying up at night. <laughs> Um, you know, with with just agony over doing that to people. But it's not as though you can just cut that line item and forget about it um, because they're going to find services somewhere else. There's going to be, you know, additional expense somewhere else. Um, but so if we're if we look at the way that the government spends money as uh, the potential to bring about, you know, a multiplier effect, you look at things. One of the things that's near and dear to me, of course, is infrastructure mm -hmm. um, and and public works. I mean, during the um, if you've ever been to a national park, you can thank um, you know deficit spending because back in the days of the Great Depression, everybody was out of work. There, the the federal government was almost broke, but they were doing deficit spending to keep people working because they knew that you can sit on your hands and let everybody languish out of work. Um, 
and you know that's it's it's just not going to bring about any kind of positive change. Or you can spend money, get work done, um, you know, find ways to invest in your country, and it'll keep people working and maintain some sort of economic strength. Um, and as I always talk about on the show, um, infrastructure is one of the ways to do that. Now, I'm 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 a firm believer in uh, both infra- infrastructure spending at the state federal level. And the state, of course, passed a capital bill last year um, that just uh, yesterday they announced a multi-year plan that showed a lot of new highway spending and things like that. All of that supports the economy. All of that gets people to work uh, more quickly. And frankly, all of it has to be done anyway, because if you don't do it, the roads crumble all the same. And you can wait a few years, wait a few years, and it just gets more expensive to fix. It's like not going to the dentist for 10 years. The problem's never going to get cheaper to fix, so you might as well just take care of it. Um so I think that uh, deficit spending on things like infrastructure and other programs that uh, that encourage employment or create employment, um, it's a good thing. Now, people on the right will always say it's not the government's job to or government's role to to create jobs where there are none. Um, but I mean, under under certain circumstances, when you've got high unemployment, I don't think that's accurate. I think at the end of the day, you've got to look at the results. Uh, kind of drop your your dogma about it, and if it, if money can be spent by the federal government on things that are going to last, be sustainable, benefit society, and in the meantime create jobs, I don't know what the problem is. I, I you you have a really hard time convincing me that there's a problem with that. Uh, I I'm with you 100 percent on that one, Ed, uh, and that leads leads me to this one paragraph uh, that supports. Uh, what you said. I've already, uh, I'll, I'll read this one out loud. Uh, in the last few years, and especially in the hellish last couple of months, the United States has come to feel like a failed state. The coronavirus is spreading, the economy is crumbling, society is fragmenting, our infrastructure is falling apart, healthcare is inadequate and costly, childcare is impossible, and life expectancy is declining. The federal government is not only often unwilling to help, but seemingly incapable of it. And whenever anyone is brave enough to suggest that the government itself should provide useful service to Americans like health care, child care, college education, the first reaction from many on the right and the left is one of defeat and resignation. How will you pay for it? They ask. The conversation often stops right there because with the twenty six point five trillion dollar national debt, America looks hopelessly, hopelessly broke. That's powerful writing. And. Uh, I applaud him for saying all that, but I already took exception to one thing. I'm just going to share this with you, uh, and I don't know if you heard my opening. It really irritates me when they go, the reaction from many on the right and the left is one of defeat and resignation. I know no one on the left, and I know a lot of lefties, no one on the left, really on the left, who is a deficit hawk, who worries about the deficit. Every lefty I know, and I know a ton of them, like does not worry about the deficit. He's really talking about centrists and conservatives. And that's a big difference. You know this as well as I, Ed, uh, because you have to navigate all these different factions politically. There's a big difference between a lefty, a right winger and a centrist. And I believe it's really the centrists that have this obsession uh, with deficit spending. And I'm wondering if you sense that that debate in the, Dem- in, the, in the Democratic Party, we're talking about a debate in the Democratic Party now between mm-hmm. centrists and lefties. Do you think that's moving to the left, that centrists themselves within the Democratic Party are going to say, you know, uh, Manjou is right. 
Ed Maher is right. We got to stop worrying so much about deficits and worry about something like the infrastructure or schools. Do you think that that debate's moving left? I mean, I, I, I do think so. I think that one of the things that always happens in recessions is um, is we find that making investments like uh, Obama's uh, stimulus stuff that was deficit spending. Um, and I mean, it wasn't the most well. I mean, it was it had to be fast. There were good things and bad things in it. But I think that that people will agree that there are things in these deficit spending programs that ultimately expedite the economic recovery. Um, but I, I think maybe the, the hopelessness that people on the left, if there is a feeling of that um, among lefties that I know, is just the sort of the, the resignation at watching people who are, you know, on the right and a paycheck away from losing their own insurance saying we shouldn't have national health care and, and the opposition that it's just not rational thought. Um, you know, it's, it's dogmatic, but people, a lot of people don't take into account their own personal circumstances and how much this, these things would actually benefit them. Um, now, again, after, you know, the, the success of some of the programs that we've seen so far in the pandemic and the, the personal impact that it's had on people um, who have changed their mind on these types of programs, I think it is going to push um, deficit spending and, um, you know, national health care and things like that. And, you know, the, the, the public support of those programs, I do believe, is going to go up. Um, you know, the, at the end of the day, this is what I tell a lot of um, what I tell a lot of my friends about um, about national health care is if they raised income taxes, you know, by, let's say, three percent, four percent just to cover national health care, if you made fifty thousand dollars a year, then your health care is costing you $1,500 or $2,000 a year. That's a lot less than it's costing you right now. So you wind up ahead. You wind up money ahead. Um, and it puts more money into people's pockets to go out and buy things. I mean, we've got a consumer-driven economy. It puts more people in a position where they can buy a home, um, do something like that. I mean, the same can be said about um, you know, student loan rescues or, uh, you know, or, or things like that. Anything that puts money into people's pockets where they can go out and buy a home that they otherwise couldn't afford or buy a new car that they couldn't afford or buy a washing machine that they couldn't otherwise afford. It's a good thing um, because we've, we've got to accept that the reality of our economy is that it's consumer driven. I think 70 or 75 percent of all economic activity in the United States is consumer driven. Um, so we should be doing whatever we can do to put money in people's pockets so they can keep buying things because when people stop buying things, as we saw in like 2008, 2009, um, the economy crashes fast and it crashes hard. Um, so anything that can be done to, um, you know, to, to take the, to take the burden off of people's pocketbooks is, is ultimately going to be a positive thing for the national economy i mean you know these aren't lefty ideas it's just math all right and uh manju closes with this uh passage and uh love to read it to you and get uh get your thoughts on it uh and he's alluding to the book on keynes he writes uh that uh, keynes is not so much a school of economic thought as a spirit of radical optimism unjustified by most of human history and extremely difficult to conjure up precisely when it is most needed during the depths of a depression or amid the fervors of war we are in a similarly dire straits now and one way we might escape is to do what keynes would suggest we do 
bend our way toward a better tomorrow. And that's how he concludes uh, his column. I'll just sum up our conversation today, Ed. Uh, do you share a sense of optimism even in these gloomy times, uh, these scary times that uh, the United States can sort of pull itself up and uh, invest in its people uh, to build this better future? You know, I... Oh, God, <laughs> I sure is. I sure hope so. I think that a lot of eyes have been open to the to the realities, um, you know, throughout the course of this um, this pandemic. So, I think uh, some of the some of the policies that are a little bit more cruel um, of the right are going to fall off the map here, which which has to be a good thing. Um, and the fact that the right is starting to abandon the president on some of these things that are harmful toward ordinary working Americans has got to be a good thing. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, that this has knocked a little bit of sense into America. And, and let me just say, as, as you were reading that final paragraph from the article, um, if we are, um, if we're, bailing out like the cruise ship industry or big banks or things like that with these rescue packages. Um, I mean, that's deficit spending too, right? So the Absolutely. right the wingers yeah. who are talking all this trash about deficit spending, but saying <laughs> we've got to bail out the airlines, we've got to bail out the cruise lines, we've got to do all this. Like, I, I don't know what your policy on swearing has been, but I've been really trying to rein it in during this conversation because, um, you know, when an industry is uh, is profitable and supported uh, by the government and, and turns a profit for 10 years and then all of a sudden it, closed, it closes down and two weeks later it needs massive federal bailouts, maybe the operation of that business isn't that sustainable to begin with. Um, and it's sort of being treated to a different standard than most small businesses or family owned businesses are. Um, but that's deficit spending. So, uh, you know, we've, we've got to call it the same thing. If you're going to spend it on businesses, you should be willing to invest in the American people too. Uh, uh, all right. As to the policy on swearing, uh, this is a podcast. Anything goes. We swear all the time. But I love the fact that we went through this entire interview without anyone swearing because uh, each week Dennis sends to a couple of radio stations uh, interviews that we do. And we always try to because they're radio and not podcasting. We like to send the ones uh, where there is no swearing. So we are definitely sending this interview. Yeah. Uh, you made it on the radio, Ed. <laughs> No swear. You hear now, that, that, that Jeff Johnson, on the other hand, he comes oh. in here, that potty mouth. What a sailor. F-bomb flying. So, uh, well, now that I know it's allowed, you better look out. Oh, no, probably can... the first and last time you're going to be sending this one out to <laughs> Uh, anyway, Ed, it's good to see you and good to hear you're safe and sound. Uh, I agree with uh, you 100%. We're a couple of old lefties. Well, I'm old. You're young. But uh, we're a couple of lefties. And I, I am going to – listen, I know as I say this that Mitch McConnell is larding up that Senate bill with all kinds of handouts to all kinds of people who don't really need it uh, and will have more inequity. But I do share – I'm going to end on a positive beat. I do believe that uh, the country has moved to the left since uh, we started having these conversations last year. And uh, when I see the Republican Party just tell Donald Trump, essentially, leave us alone with these um, with the cut on the payroll taxes is not the time to raise that. Uh, and when I see them embrace the notion of extending these unemployment benefits, then I realize that a significant 
uh, change has happened. Now, where we go from here, well, that's something you and I will be talking about and watching for a while to come. But yes, I'm going to share your optimism. How about that? For once in my life, Ed, I'm going to be optimistic. That sounds good. If I can close with one thing, my, my closing thought, I, uh, I just wanted to um, offer my condolences once again to Dennis on the loss of his dad. Oh, thank you. Uh, never, I never met your dad, Dennis, but I know you, you've got his name. And uh, as long as I've known you, you're a good man. You've got a good heart and, uh, you know, your dad did a great job with you. And uh, so he must have been a hell of a guy. And I'd uh, just like to offer my condolences to rest in peace for your dad. Thank you. And he was an operating engineer, local 520. So, well, of course he was. He's a good man. <laughs> God bless. Best, best wishes to you and your family. Thank you so much, Ed. That means a lot. And also just, uh, you know, uh, Ro, she weighed in on the live stream chat and said, thank God for unions. So you're very appreciated here on our program as well, man. So thank you for yeah, being on the show. Uh, uh, we're very union friendly. We get a lot of heat from that sometimes, but uh, you know, unions supported me when I got fired, and they stepped up. Uh, and I've now my I've got like three interviews lined up with the newspaper union. Uh, Ed, my my uh, newspaper brothers and sisters are really under siege. A lot of these hedge funds are buying newspapers, laying people off. It's happening at the Tribune. So we've got an interview with Charlie Johnson, who is the head of the guild at the Tribune. Uh, we have the president of the newspaper guild coming on next week. So it's a very union friendly show. Uh, make no bones about it. So anyway, Ed, stay safe, right. stay sound. I'll be talking to you soon. All right. You too. Take care, everybody. I really appreciate uh, Ed's sending out that condolence uh, to you. And um, so that's that's what I said. That's, and that's what I <laughs> yeah. feel. Sorry about that, uh, man. I'm getting I'm still getting used to this whole uh, Google no, meet thing. I got to say this. What? I hate to say anything nice about technology ever. Everybody knows that, but this Google meet is pretty good. D. I know, you know, it's, it's been, uh, Ed sounded so clear. And, uh, I think who are the guests where we're going to have miles on in a little while. See, we got to get him on the Google meet, but we, the one guest we had this week, it wasn't Google, it wasn't TC, Terry Cosgrove, just old fashioned phone, TC, old fashioned phone. He said, Google meet, go to hell. Give me a, get, call me up on my landline. Yeah, I think we're going to next time we everybody's Google Meet from now on. So. I think of when I hear Google Meet, I can't help but think of M-E-A-T, like taco meat. I don't yeah, know I why. Know. Like, it's weird. Uh, but uh, we found out that uh, Jay Marie has a landline. Ben, we talked about that earlier. Remember, we were wondering who oh, had a yeah. landline. Jay Marie has yeah. a land, she has a landline, but she doesn't have a phone hooked up to it. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, it's the thought that counts. It is the thought that counts. I have a landline, but Jay Marie, I haven't used it in so long. The only time I ever used it was when I call it up as a gag uh, to f- confuse Dennis with the ringing phone. And it so. works every single time. <laughs> when he was in, back in the day when he was God, now we're acting like back in the day when you were in the attic. You was know, used to be back in the day when we were at uh, the, the bright one. Now we're back in the day when you're in the attic. I would make the phone ring and he'd be like, what's going on anyway that's so funny uh yeah those those days may be long gone pal this sound sounds pretty good and i'm I'm kicking it in my apartment i almost thought about doing a load of laundry during that ed maher interview Uh, anyway, uh, we're almost out of time. We got to get ready to uh, bring Miles on. Uh, D, before we uh, head down the door, do you got any updates for us? Absolutely, I do. The following comes from Block Club Chicago. And who's the writer of this? Hold on. Mark Garino. All right. Oh, uh, he was on our show once. Anyway. Oh, I knew that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mark. 
MG, Mark Carino. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, so this article here, it's uh, involving yesterday's city council meeting. We have an update on one thing that passed here. Uh, it says here the Chicago City Council on Wednesday passed a municipal code amendment aimed at neighborhoods where escalating rents and evictions stemming from COVID-19 are raising fears about gentrification. The so-called, quote, fair notice measure passed on a 35 to 14 vote. It raises the notification period from 30 to up to 120 days that landlords must give tenants if they decide not to renew their lease. The notice period will remain at 30 days for tenants who have lived in their apartment for six months or less. And this would be raised to 60 days for renters with between six months and three years in the same apartment and four months for those who have been living in their homes more than three years. Aldermen who voiced their objection to the ordinance said it would harm mom and pop landlords who own investment properties. The extension, they said, will only encourage, quote, bad tenants to not pay rent for an additional three months, a time period during which they could also harm the property. Oh, my God, he's the star of the show, Ben. We got a quote from Alderman Ray Lopez at the 15th Ward. Let me guess. He was against it. (laughs) Alderman Alderman Lopez said, quote, I understand the administration is trying to avoid a housing crisis for renters. But what concerns me and what has continued to concern me is that we are shifting the burden on individuals who are in no position to afford carrying a greater burden when their renters cannot meet their obligations. Oh, wait, we have another quote here. Uh, Catch me on Fox News. Go on YouTube. Whoa, come on, Lopez. Quit bragging. No, but your thoughts there on uh, Lopez. Yeah, I, you know, we're really going to have to get Raylo on the show. Uh, He has become more or less uh, the conservative voice in the city council. Uh, Although I think Nick Spazzato, my old friend Nick Spazzato of uh, the 38th Ward, also voted against uh, this measure as well. Look. I have a lot of friends, uh, or at least one friend I can think of, who owns a two-flat. He's always worried about uh, the city uh, forcing him uh, to accept a bad tenant. He he fills my ear with bad tenant stories. I get where they're coming from. Uh, But the reality, D, we talk about you can't pay your rent. What are you going to do? You're going to go out on the street? I mean, you can't pay your rent. This is an emergency. Stay so, home, save lives if you can afford rent. Yeah. Yeah. Stay home, stay <laughs> li- save lives. But if you can't pay your rent, go out in the street. So, uh, Raylo, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Unemployment is like, it's close to 20. But what are you thinking? And Nick, you've gone so right. You used to be a, like a lefty when I first met you on economic issues. So I, I don't know why it wasn't unanimous. I'm a little disappointed because it wasn't unanimous because it's like they're not looking out for people who are most, and it's not, it, Ed was talking about this. We have this no, bad tenants. I, I, I know a lot of tenants who are really good people who could be kicked out on the street if they can't pay their rent. And they're not bad people. So I don't know, show a little compassion, show a little heart. Uh, at a, a difficult time. That's what I say. Michael Girardi said, stay homeless, stay, uh, save lives. That's uh... <laughs> stay <laughs> Girardi's a genius, man. That's uh, stay homeless. 
And what I'll do, oh uh, my God. Mr. Girardi, I uh, have your song. I'm going to put it in my little system now. And uh, when we end the show, we'll play uh, Michael Girardi's latest song, uh, Help Is On The Way. We're going to play that uh, at the end of the program. So I'm going to load that up, and Ben and I are going to talk. And by the time it's loaded up, we'll end the show. Uh, so and we also have some more quotes here. This comes from Alderman Brendan Riley. Ben, of what ward? Uh, Alderman Brendan Riley is of the 42nd Ward. Oh, what a dork, guys. <laughs> All right. He says here uh, he agreed, saying public testimony against the amendment before the meeting uh, swayed him to vote against the ordinance. He said, quote, I'm also not terribly sympathetic to developers and big landlords who try to game the system to prematurely eject tenants. I have a number of residents on my ward who have a studio apartment they rent out as income property. My concern is without recognizing their mortgage obligations, we could inadvertently be forcing foreclosures on folks who are otherwise providing space for tenants to live. Uh, that was the end of the quote there. And supporters of the amendment said that while not perfect, it is necessary in a year when the pandemic is causing a crisis for renters. Wait, so I'm trying to follow what uh, uh, Brennan, he voted against it. Brennan Riley voted against it because he thought it would f- create foreclosures did i get that right is uh, that what he said it says here alderman brendan riley agreed saying public testimony against the amendment before the meeting swayed him to vote against the ordinance wait hold on someone is actually calling me i can't believe it this is not me hello hello did you really answer it i just got evicted no just <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, did. I, did answer, I did answer it i don't know it was a, a solicit, solicitor oh. I, I don't know what brendan riley is talking he's about. voted against and, the ordinance yeah, he voted against the ordinance. And by the way, all you guys, Nick, I love you. Ray Lopez, you voted for that TIF handout a year ago. And now you're being tough guy on ordinary renters. Come on. Where is all this concern about the good, you know, uh, taxpayers of Chicago when you were voting for the Lincoln Yards? I'm just... It's like it's like Ed was getting at it. He was so good what he said. It's like you give money to a billion to a developer. Oh, it's economic development. But when you look out for some little guy, it's like, well, we're undercutting uh, our neighborhoods. So I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for having cold, like cold hearts at a time like this. I don't show a little compassion. Uh, in my humble and by the way there are programs that will go out to protect landlords as well uh, in this uh, environment so what, what was uh, Girardi's line it's a great line uh, stay, stay homeless, homeless. save <laughs> lives He's, by the way can I just say this D can I do a little promotion can I take a moment to do a well it promotion? is the Ben Jarofsky show so go for it a little shameless promotion <laughs> uh, as we speak Dave Glowatz is uh, getting his recordings together together from yesterday's meeting. I'm now imitating Gloats at the computer. Okay, and so he's gonna have, and he'll be on next week. It's one of my favorite segments. Uh, I already cut a deal with him. He'll be on next Wednesday, and that's when we'll get to hear Dave Gloats. Dennis, play um, Ray Lopez, and Dennis will go. You got it. Yeah. Ding! 
And then he'll go, Ben, why can't you do that? Yeah, still ben. waiting for you to take notes on those Glowats interviews. Uh, and uh, we got one more quote to read here, but it's so funny. Our live stream chat room, we're all together realizing that, hey, landlines, maybe they're not so bad. We're talking about how you don't really uh, miss a lot of calls. None of the calls drop out or anything. So collectively, all of us on the live stream chat are starting to uh, turn the page on landlines. Ben, you may be a pioneer. Pioneer. That's the first time anybody ever said that about me. <laughs> All right. Every- got that call right in the middle of the show, and it was a solicitor. Uh, yeah. You know uh, that hello. Is this yeah. Jim Borvarsky? <laughs> Yeah, anyway. We got one more quote here, and uh, it's from the 35th Ward Alderman. Hey, Fox News, invite him, huh? Yeah. See what happens. Eat your lunch. (laughs) All right. uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa says, quote, the issue of displacement has a real-world impact on them. Uh, That is why we are seeing working families pushed out of these neighborhoods. 90 days is very reasonable. It's basic decency. It's basic (laughs) respect. And it will go a long way in this pandemic. Here, here. Basic decency. Come on. Come on, Nick. Is there an Nick? is there an age limit on running for mayor? Uh no. I I I I do not believe there is. You know, that'd be something I should know, but I don't know that. I don't know that, D. Come on, Rosa. Say. Do it. Well, he's definitely up beyond it. he's 30. I think you could run for mayor if you're 21. I just made that up. I have no idea if there's an age limit. And we're I winging it here on the program. Uh, we yeah. are- uh, yes, there is an age limit, uh, Dennis. It's, it's enacted in the city code, section 428 uh, You have to be 18. I just made that up. Everything I just made up. I have no idea. We have more, we have more from uh, the city council meeting yesterday. The council also approved a measure to table a proposal that will designate a large area area of Pilsen as a historic landmark district. The six-month extension will give the city's Department of Planning and Development time to work more with the community on concerns. Although voted to approve the measure in committee, Alderman Byron Sigcho-Lopez argued that the landmark district would harm longtime residents who would be hit with an exorbitant expenses required to keep their property up to historic standards. On Wednesday, he said he was not given enough time to work with the city on that ordinance. He said, quote, that sets a horrible precedent. I was forced to vote on an extension that could have tremendous implication, especially with homeowners. Mayor Lori Lightfoot told him that his concern was invalid concerning uh, considering her administration, quote, spent countless hours trying to engage him. She also suggested that the six month extension the council was voting on was precisely to address his concern. And we have a quote from Mayor Lightfoot. She says, uh, it is not anything other than to give you plenty of time to be heard. I take great umbrage to the suggestion that you are blindsided or anyone in your community. You may not be happy, but to suggest this was thrown on you is simply not correct. And the record speaks otherwise. Well, we didn't get a percentage on how full of shit he was. So I guess uh, (laughs) that's good. Listen, I want to say this, uh, Raylo, you've uh, done a great job of positioning yourself as Lori Lightfoot's uh, foe uh, in the city council. And as a result, you're now uh, going to be a regular on Fox where you get in and say things like, uh, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump, but I agree with everything he says. Uh, I got to tell you, Lori Lightfoot has no great love for Byron Sixual Lopez. 
And uh, I never hear him going on Fox complaining about it. Or he's so mean to me, you know. And uh, so I'm just saying, she's always mad at him. You remember, D, when he, she's always like, he was on the show talking about uh, his the squabble he had with her over a speech he gave in New York about Pilsen. I forget what it was, but she, he got nasty texts and angry calls. You know, Byron's, I guess, a sterner stock than Raylo. He never cries about it, okay? He never goes on – you never see Byron Sexual Lopez on Fox TV. Well, I heard they vet, I heard they vet their potential guests, and uh, when vetting Byron Sexual Lopez, they said he was a, quote, dirty hippie. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, also uh, – Byron Sexual oh, Lopez's wife, Lorraine Targos, was on the show last week. If you want to check that interview out, a great interview. Uh, it's uh, one of our bonus interviews. Absolutely. You can download it at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. One of my personal favorite guests, Lorraine Targos. She lets the right have it. She lets the left have it. She jabs Ben every now and then. It's good time. All right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, also, oops, I forgot to mention this. Uh, Lori Lightfoot tried to propose her new carpooling law in the city. I won't just turn the car around. Huh? I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out. And I'm going to make you walk home. Yeah, that that lost 50 to nothing. Uh, <laughs> come on, Raylo. You're not the only one, okay? Raylo acts like he's the only one. Uh, she's mean to me, but she's nice to everyone else. Oh, yeah? Try to tell that to the people who are looking at the clouds on the lakefront. I just want to like, move along, you. <laughs> There's a lot oh, more info yeah. on uh, yesterday's city council meeting. Just go to Block Club Chicago. You know what? I'll post it on our Facebook page for everyone to check out. How about that? All right. And, and one more thing. What? Show up next Wednesday when Dave Glowatz comes on. He goes, Dennis, uh, play the Byron Sixo Lopez one. And Dennis like, Ben, that's how you do it. Okay. I said, Dennis, these little, hey, D. Play this thing. Yeah. You know that thing I say you. Hey, D, you got that thing? Play it. Huh? <laughs> I uploaded like five things. Which one? You know that one, man, where the guy's like, ah. Like, oh, awesome. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Mr. Bike, where are you at, buddy? He's going to be coming on next week. That'll be ring, that'll be ring. awesome. Oh, ring, and ring. Also, don't forget our part two of today's program mm. uh, is featuring the one, the only. Wait, is this going to be a bonus? Uh, yes, very good. I buddy. do this every Thursday. Uh, every Thursday, I, I think know. we're going to have a part two, but it's actually a bonus. Dave, I think you should seriously consider, uh, reconsider the bong you have when you wake up. I just think that that may help a little. Okay. I don't I smoke like pot in the morning. But you chop the wood, that's good. But when you hit the bond, not so good, okay? I just think you might want to reconsider. I don't know. Just throw it out there. It's just a... Ladies and gentlemen, I tease. The man has not smoked reefer in like 50 years, and he's just good sport going along with the gag. You don't even... You don't even know what it is. What is that stuff, Ben? I thought it was oregano. <laughs> five days. Five days it's been. Okay, fine. And counting. I went back home and, uh, you know, me and my brother had a good old time. So, yeah. Oh, you just threw your brother under the bus, all right? He's got to take a drug test tomorrow. Study up for that drug test. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, find us online uh, at Benny J Show. B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. Send us an email, Show at gmail.com, or you can call us on the phone, 708-658-4788. That number again, 708-658-4788.
Wait, uh, what was that number again? Oh, for the third time, 708-658-4788. Oh. Hello? Just got a call. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. By the way, uh, before we head out, Frank, want to thank you very much. Uh, man, this guy's quick. The age to run for mayor of Chicago is 18 years old. Oh, yeah, because remember, uh, old Jamal Green, he ran. That is correct. Very good. Well, look at Brain on Brad. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Frank, for uh, the update. I want to thank Ed Maher. He did an outstanding job, as he always does. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Walton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Frank can tell you, as Ed Maher can tell you, and as Mitch Trubisky can tell you, I just happen to be looking at a picture of him, back home and all. I've never met him in my life. <laughs> well, he knows all about you, and he says, back home and all. They call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everyone. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out. And I'm going to make you walk home. Yay for our teachers. Yay for our teachers. All right, don't go anywhere, live streamers, because we're going to play Michael Girardi's song. Help is on the way is the title of the song. New music from Michael Girardi. We'll be playing this more and more uh, throughout the months, the years, however long we have a show.
Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers!